I know what people think. They think I work alone, that I enter into a town like a lone superhero and boom, people are instantly wowed by my good news of salvation. That I'm so intelligent, speaking things which are difficult to comprehend and without emotion. But you know what? Those people who think like that are wrong. I don't work alone. I'm always surrounded by a great team of people. Check out these folks with me on this occasion, or it will be soon. Luke, Sopater, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius, my dear son Timothy, Antichicus and Trophimus, a community of God's people from different places working with me. It is for God's sake that I work and I am his. It's my conviction that the good news of salvation can be had by all through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. As for being without emotion, clearly those people have never met me and therefore misunderstand me. Emotions are part of the human experience and that is what I am a mere human being used by the God I proclaim, worship and serve. I once was very different though. I was on a mission, a mission from God, or so I thought, a mission to defend God's truth. It was my job to be God's defender and root out the miscreants known as the way. Those people claiming that Jesus Yeshua ben Joseph had risen from the dead after being crucified. No way could God have a son. Rubbish. It was blasphemy. It was. How could the saviour of my people, the Jews, the Messiah, die on a cross? A Gentile cross at that and be cursed by God. Patently absurd, isn't it? bald-faced and blatant blasphemy. No, no, no. It was my duty as a man zealous for the law to eradicate all those who were followers of this man Jesus, those heretics, those blasphemers. Then, I still remember it as if it was yesterday. I was on my road on the road to Damascus, embarking on my mission, and boom! Suddenly a voice from heaven cried out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I asked who it was that was speaking, and the voice again said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. God had stopped me, arrested me in my tracks, shone his light upon me and the mercy of God overflowed upon me and within me. So Jesus really is alive. Wow! Paul used the word wow a lot, by the way. It's just not in here. It's true. Jesus is alive. Do you hear me? Jesus is alive. Jesus the Messiah did die on the cross. But he came back to life rising from the dead three days later, just as he repeatedly said that he would. Afterwards, he made many public appearances before he ascended back to God the Father. 
Then he appeared to me. Me, Saul of Tarsus. What's the word? Wow. That was about 20 years ago now. Now I'm on a different mission. I'm a different man. A mission given undeniably to me by God. A mission which is to tell the world by all possible means the good news of Jesus Christ. I, now named Paul, am no longer an enemy of Jesus, but I'm now his friend. He calls me his friend and not his persecutor. This conversion was a total transformation by God upon me. My attitudes, my character, my relationship with God have all been transformed and it's for his glory alone. Amen. My God loves me. Me. Unbelievable, isn't it? My conversion is real. My transformation is real. God continuing to work in me, upon me, and through me. So here we are today, having just left that majestic city of Ephesus where I spent the best part of the last three years. A city and people I love dearly, loved often with tears and with joy. Recently, as a result of my preaching and sharing the good news about Jesus, some folk took exception and caused a riot. So onwards to Jerusalem and the believers there. I have a gift for them, a wonderfully sacrificial gift from the Gentile churches to the church there in that great city of Jerusalem. It's a practical way of looking after the welfare of the church of fellow believers there in Jerusalem. The churches in Macedonia and Achaia are wanting to make a practical contribution towards the Christians in Jerusalem. Headlong we go, guided by God and serving him. I'll catch up with my beloved son Timothy and Erastus, whom I have sent ahead of me. Firstly, though, let's look at this map so that you can see where I am and where we're going tonight. Verse 1 and 2, first we go north from Ephesus to Macedonia. I may just stay in Corinth for the winter. We'll see about that. Then in verse 3, I'll return through Macedonia instead of sailing to Syria. Then I'll go to Troas, where Eutychus is resuscitated from the dead by God. That's not me telling prophecy, that's just stating fact. And then by foot to Asos, then we will sail to Mytilene, then sail to Kos, Samos and Miletus. And still on our way to Jerusalem, it's still all the way over here. We'll get there, even if not directly, hopefully by Pentecost. So, with that introduction, we come to tonight's passage of Acts 20. Please do have your Bibles open if you haven't already. That way you can check on if what I'm saying is fact or not. We may just finish by midnight, and hopefully nobody's sitting on any window sills to fall asleep and fall down dead. Although we've got Pastor Adam here, so... The chapter, as you can see, breaks down into three sections. Verses 1 to 6, Paul is in Macedonia and Greece. Verse 7 to 12, Paul is in Troas. 
And in verses 13 to 39, Paul says goodbye. And that sermon that we have there is the only one in the book of Acts given by Paul to other Christians. All other sermons recorded are evangelistic sermons to those who don't know that Jesus is Lord. It's a one-off sermon, this. It's probably the same words he said there that he did to encourage the other believers that we heard earlier on. And as ever, there's a lot in this chapter for us. And in preparation, as I read the passage, I listened to it being read repeatedly and I meditated upon it. Two words came over and over into my mind. It couldn't be many more than two because otherwise I'd forget them. Two words which are important for the church today just as they have been down through history. Now for our first word, guidance. How was Paul guided by God to fulfill God's purposes and his will? I know some people probably think that Paul was guided by God putting uh, visible arrows in the sky, pointing Paul and his team in the right direction and saying, Paul, you go that way, mate. Maybe you're one of those here tonight. And if you are, then I'm sorry to disappoint you by saying that uh, that's probably not how God guided Paul, is it? As far as we know, anyway, unless Luke missed something. Another time, the Holy Spirit stopped Paul and his team from entering a place twice. That was back in Acts chapter 16, which we heard a few weeks ago. How the Spirit stopped them, we don't know. But soon afterwards, we find out why he did. Because God spoke to Paul in a vision, didn't he? A vision whereby a man in Macedonia begged Paul to visit. So Paul went and preached the gospel there. But that was probably quite a rare event, if not one off. So how was Paul primarily guided by God? I would like to suggest that in the main, Paul just used his brain. He set out where he wanted to go and proceeded to go there. If he got stopped, he went somewhere else. That's what the evidence of Acts seems to imply, doesn't it? Just as we've seen here in this passage and in previous weeks. And we have that intriguing phrase in verse 22, compelled by the Spirit. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, bound by the Spirit. What are we to make of that phrase? Is that in direct contrast to Paul using his mind to work things out, as some people suggest today? By no means no. Paul knew, as he has said, that he was to be in Jerusalem. He was obligated by his convictions. The Spirit was binding Paul to his inner conviction that Jerusalem was where he was to go. He also had that gift, remember, from the Gentile churches to give to the Jerusalem church. That thought also would have played on his conscience. He had undertaken the task and it was honour bound to fulfil it. Therefore, Paul was bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem. Bound by the Spirit through conviction and conscience. His overarching conviction was that people must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It was his aim to preach that message everywhere that he went. His conviction fed his aim in verse 24. 
to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And Paul was also guided by circumstances. Once he had found out that the Jews had made a plot against him, Paul changed his plan and went back through Macedonia. It would have been easy for a boatload of Jewish opponents going as pilgrims to Jerusalem to get over to get a hold of Paul and throw him overboard, wouldn't it? I don't know if Paul could walk on water or not. Or with Eutychus in verse 10. When it occurred, do you think Paul had an internal debate with himself? Hmm. Is God guiding me to keep speaking now or is he wanting me to go help that lad? Of course not. Paul saw the need, used what's in his brain, went to the lad, prayed, held him, and the lad was resuscitated to the glory of God. Amen. God also would have guided Paul through prayer into his purposes and direction. Perhaps that's why Paul went alone on his journey by land to Assos, to spend time with God alone and seek his face. And so Paul continued to set his face towards Jerusalem. And another way Paul used his mind in being guided by God was by relating his future to his past. In this sermon, Paul says, you know, in relation to his past, in verses 18, verse 20, and verse 34. And I know, in relationship to his future, in verses 23, 25, and 29. Paul had learnt the lessons of his past to help him in his future, didn't he? That's what it seems to imply. All he knew that lay ahead for sure as he preached the gospel was that suffering and persecution was to be his for the sake of Jesus. Of course, these are only some of the ways. He certainly also sought and used the counsel of others. But then that begs a question, how are we guided? What can we learn from this so that we can go out of here to put into practice in our life? We saw that Paul was guided by a vision, his brain, his convictions, his conscience, his circumstances, the past, prayer and through wise counsel. Not some mystical arrow in the sky in sight. Nope. Perhaps the most common question we get asked is how can I know God's guidance for me to know his purposes and will for me? I must get asked it at least twice a week. So firstly, we are guided by being controlled by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We see this clearly in evidence in the life of Paul. Another way to say this is by submitting to God the Holy Spirit's leading. Fundamental to being guided by the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit. Or another way of saying it is to be controlled by the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is quenched or grieved, you want an explanation of that, Adam's your man. That's why he's pastor. And then the Holy Spirit no longer has control of us. Or is it just me that goes along those sort of lines? To allow the Holy Spirit control, we need to resubmit ourselves to God daily. At least Daily. And part of being controlled by the Spirit is to enable him to convict us of sin, regularly confessing our sin and accepting, accepting the assurance of our being forgiven by a merciful and gracious God. 
we have to go on devoting ourselves to being a living sacrifice for God and seeking the Holy Spirit's divine power and wisdom in order to serve Jesus more fully. We show our devotion to God by yielding all things to him, including our gifts and our plans. In yielding to the Holy Spirit, the body and the mind are given to him sacrificially for the glory of Jesus. Both the body and the mind are yielded because the body activates what is conceived in the mind. We are called to a a total dedication of placing all thoughts, plans and actions into God's hands and the seeking of his divine wisdom. We set out where we want to go when we let God steer, accelerate and brake. And sometimes he does all three at once, doesn't he? So we're committing donuts down the road. Again, is that just my experience? It's like driving a car. No point just sitting in the car hoping to get somewhere if you aren't willing to turn it on and actually drive. So we start out and let God do the steering, accelerating and the braking. Just as Paul, as we've witnessed Paul doing here and in recent weeks. And we saw tonight how God the Holy Spirit leads through convictions and conscience. If you don't know what a conviction is, then you should have been at Well Disciple last Saturday. How are we doing at standing firm in our convictions and allowing God to refine them? How, how, we, how are we doing at allowing God to refine our conscience, pricking and poking it? Again, is that just my experience? And in addition to submitting to the Holy Spirit, other people and circumstances are great helps in regards to guidance. We saw that earlier tonight with Paul. Seeking the advice of others in trying to understand God's guidance plays an important role in deciding God's will in our life. The Ephesian elders were certainly guided by God through the ministry of Paul, were they not? And when seeking the advice of others, we should bear in mind that the person should be a reliable, godly and faithful servant of God. How often have we not asked for advice because we don't want to humble ourselves and actually ask for help and advice? Or again, am I alone in being like that? In the end, each of us as individuals are responsible for our own actions and for knowing God's guidance for us. Then again, as we saw earlier, we have circumstances which are a great learning tool, aren't they? Circumstances surround us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Through circumstances, God often discloses his perfect will and guidance. And you can see examples of this in the lives of Abraham, Moses, and again, Paul. So are we learning the lessons of our past? both individually as well as those passed down through church history, to help us in our future, both individually and as a body. That's one reason why we should be studying what has gone before in order to be ready for what is to come. A further question. What did Paul do with that guidance? It's our second word. He served. He served God and he served others. Showed his love of God by loving others and serving both. And we see here, just in this passage as we do elsewhere, Paul served wherever he was. 
in public spaces as well as in private spaces, such as homes. We see that Paul served God and showed that by serving others. Serving others both in private and in public. He served groups of people such as the leaders of the Ephesian church, as well as individuals such as Eutychus, who obviously had the gift of falling asleep. Paul overcame opposition while on his acts of service. Opposition, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 19. And we see in verse 23 that Paul has been warned what is to come. Persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the God that he loves, serves and worships. The God who is his master. So what can we learn of Paul's use of words and of his knowledge in his acts of service to God and others. We see that with words, Paul challenged, comforted, encouraged, evangelized, healed, prayed, preached, taught, warned, comforted and worshipped. All with words. We also see that he worked manually with his hands, probably as a tent maker. We see a couple of times where Paul says that he served with tears in his eyes. Verses 19 and 31. When was the last time any of us served with tears in our eyes? It's not something we usually associate with Paul, is it? In all these ways of serving God, Paul showed that service of God by serving others and being a consistent example to others is a good witness for God to others. Paul knew that he knew that he knew he was called by God to be a witness to the Gentiles of a loving God of mercy and grace. And all for God's sake. Let's see in this passage how Paul did that. Verse 2, he encouraged Verse 7, he worshipped by sharing in the Lord's Supper and preached. Verse 10, he prayed. Verse 19, he says, I've done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. Verse 20 and 21, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for Jews and Greeks alike the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 24, But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Verse 25, He preached the kingdom. Verse 27, I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. Verse 31, my constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. Verse 34, you know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and the needs of those who were with me. And verse 35, finally, and I've been a constant example of how you can help those in need. Not only do we see Paul encouraging others to go serve, but we see other people serving as well, such as when they engaged in worship and the Lord's Supper. We also saw that God himself serves by his grace and his mercy. And we know that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, was the greatest servant of all, don't we? 
One way the Ephesian elders were to serve amongst others was by protecting their flock. To be on their guard and have their wits about them. They were to be on their guard for when wolves would enter amongst them to try and steal the sheep. I don't know if you've seen those nature programs, on, but wolves look so cuddly and innocent, don't they? Yet wolves as animals hunt in packs and are predators. Collectively, they use their wits, they use their guile, intelligence, cunning and speed, panicking their prey and usually concentrating on the weakest. Their prey, on the other hand, as a collective defence, have a great sense of smell, have good hearing, agility, speed and sharp hooves. Who'd want to be kicked in the head by a deer? Certainly not a wolf. And what Paul means as wolves are those people being ear-tickling false teachers trying to lure people away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's many of them in the church these days, isn't there? Or again, is that just my experience? Wolves that knew nothing about the real gospel of Jesus Christ and repentance and are only in it for what they could get out of it. Ergo, the the elders are to use their senses, their wisdom and their knowledge to sense out these wolves. It wasn't long after this that we see that it did actually occur, just as Paul said it would. You look in Ephesians and in the book of Revelation. Once again, what can we take away with us tonight so that we can go from here to live, continue living lives worthy of Jesus Christ? Just as Paul was gifted, so were the Ephesian elders. And as I said, Eutychus obviously had the gift of being able to fall asleep like that. Now I realise, of course, that some of you have probably heard this a hundred times before, but we're going to talk about it anyway because I'm under direction. All of us here tonight have what we call spiritual gifts. We know from other parts of the Bible that God, through his infinite wisdom, mercy and grace, bestows these gifts that belong to him upon his servants, you and I. These gifts are to be used primarily to bring him glory. That was Paul's motive, as we saw earlier, didn't we? They are opportunities for you and I to serve other people, to show that we're serving God by serving other people. Some gifts like teaching, helping or leadership quite possibly are enhancements of natural abilities. While others like the gift of faith, the gift of healing and the gift of miracles are from the Holy Spirit's empowerment alone. And the reason that the Holy Spirit imparts spiritual gifts to us as Christians is so that the whole body of Christ can be built up for the common good of the church, local and universal. And as the Apostle Peter writes, in 1 Peter chapter 4, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That was certainly evident in the life of Paul, even in our brief glimpse of him tonight, isn't it? And as we have gifts, we have a responsibility to discover and develop them. And we are also to help others discover and develop their gifting. Again, just as Paul did earlier. When was the last time you and I did that? 
but to discover, discern, develop, and put into effect our gifts so that God can be glorified and his church, local and universal, built up. Have you discovered your gifts of service yet? We're to employ our gifts and our talents faithfully by asking God to continue their development, strengthening and opportunities to use them. We're to seek gifts that build others up, encouraging them. We're to ask God faithfully for gifts that give opportunity for service to God and for others. And every one of us here is creative in some way. How creative are you in your service of God and of others? We're not to neglect or ignore our gifts and talents. The church needs you. Church local and church universal. And if you need help, ask somebody. So how are you serving God in this church and outside of church, in your workplace and at home and at play? Wherever we go, work, rest or play, online or offline, we are called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ and serving him alone. Serving him in our office, our college, our home, and wherever we go. How are we doing at that? And three quick questions to ask ourselves. Am I willing to do whatever God commands me to do? Am I willing to be humble enough to ask other people's advice and for their help? Because that's quite a big stumbling block, isn't it? Because most of the time, we don't like to ask for help. Or again, is that just me? Am I willing to sacrifice my desires so that God's will is achieved and his glory acclaimed? And how are we doing at looking out for wolves amongst us as warned by Paul? The church we used to belong to in London would often have people from the nearby Jehovah's Witnesses or the Church of Scientology sneak in to visit the congregation after the services to see if they could steal people away to join their cult. Usually by inviting their prey to do some form of Bible study in the middle of the week. I know because they tried it with me. But as Paul said, not only wolves from outside, but also wolves from amongst us. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Or it could be. And I'm sure it's happened here before, although I have no great evidence for that. So let's all be on our guard. Not primarily from what is taught up here at the front, though we are to keep our minds active to hear what is being said but more what happens after the service, particularly by others, and away from here during the week. Possibly even from within the home group. Let's all be on our guard for ourselves and for those that we know. Let's use our own knowledge of scripture, our common sense, and our senses to sense out the wolves. We're getting close to finishing. Fear not. Let's have a look now to our words and our use of words. How are you and I doing at our use of words? Words are our central means of communication, but also of miscommunication, aren't they? Are the words you and I use filled with grace, always of truth, healing, uplifting, encouraging and building up others? Words of comfort and as appropriate of challenge and rebuke. Serving others with our words, we can all do that, can't we? 
And sure, there are times when we need words to be used for rebuking in love, but that's always to be under our thoughts and our attitudes, doesn't it? Our words and our communication have, 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 have the power to bring life, healing and encouragement, but also on the contrary have the power to bring corruption, degradation and death, don't they? How's your use of words going? Are we sometimes embarking on gossip under the, the pretense of Christian sharing? You know, oh, listen, did you hear about such and such? Oh, no. Really? Wow. Just gossip by another name, isn't it? I think we've all done that. So let God himself help us to use our words for the supreme glory of Jesus, who is to be our master. That's one of the ways in which you and I will truly be seen to be one of his disciples. Our words have power and we're to use them wisely. As for silence, well, sometimes silence is golden, isn't it? Although as Proverbs 17 verse 28 says, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. But at other times, silence too is misused, isn't it? We stay silent when we should be saying something, particularly encouraging and building up of that person who's out there by themselves, in the crowd. We all at times ignore people in need of care and we use our silence against them, don't we? Or again, am I alone in doing this? And so as we go now into this new week, let's go with the confidence that, that God is guiding us when we ask him to and that we are to serve him wherever we go, work, home and play. As C.S. Lewis once said, it's not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done so, the rest lies with God. I know too many Christians who are afraid to do something different in case it fails or because they think it somehow goes against what God's plan has for them. And as I tell them, if it's against God, he'll soon let you know. Sometimes by a clip round the ears or again, probably just the way he speaks to me. We have to use words to and our silence to glorify God. Words that comfort, challenge gently, heal, rebuke and to communicate the gospel to other people, those outside this church. A confidence like Paul's is to be in God and his words of grace and mercy. The words we use can heal people, heal their hurts. Our words of encouragement can be a boost to others and ourselves and glorifying to God. I know what it's like to be hurt by the words of others. People telling lies about me and gossiping. Gossiping from the realms of fantasy. Even recently, in the last couple of weeks. But I also know beyond belief, beyond doubt rather, that words can be a healing balm. Also recently. And I know that daily I have to ask God for repentance of my misuse and abuse of words. I have to ask forgiveness of somebody I hurt with my words or my silence. And then finally, 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 our knowledge. Let's go on growing in knowledge, particularly knowledge of God, so that we can pass that knowledge on. 
We learnt this. We we heard about Bernard of Clairvaux in Wow Church on Thursday, in the 12th century. He's about 500 years older than me. There are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is curiosity. There are those who seek knowledge to be known by others. Well, that's vanity. There are those who seek knowledge in order to serve. That is love. I'm convinced that is why Paul sought knowledge and to distribute what he knew, to serve God and others with love. Who will you share your knowledge of Jesus Christ with this week? How will you use your knowledge this week to be a help or encouragement of somebody else? Who will you help to protect from the wolves this week with your sensitivity, your sense and your knowledge of God? So let's go from here, knowing we are being guided by God and to serve his purposes and will. And with verse 24 in mind, determined wherever we go, work, rest or play, to go on to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given us. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. We're not all called explicitly to be evangelists, but we are all called to do the work of an evangelist. We're not all called to be pastors and elders, that is, shepherds of God's people. But each of us can take care of others in our own way, can't we? A gentle word somewhere? A phone call? Invite someone round for coffee? May God continue to guide us as we serve him in word and deed. And may God be glorified in each of our lives every day as effective witnesses for him in this town, our workplaces, this country and this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your written word. I pray that tonight you have been glorified by what's been said, what's been sung, because it's for your honour and for your glory that we go about our business for you. Thank you that you guide us and that you want us to serve you and to show our service of you by serving others in our actions and in our words. We ask this, Father, through the, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who lives within all those who love you and seek you and serve you in the power of the Holy Spirit who unifies us as one people. Amen.